Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. Douglas Rushkoff is one of the world's leading humanist critics of contemporary capitalism, particularly of the digital economy. His latest acclaimed book is Team Human, and I began our conversation by asking him to describe the purpose not just of his writing, but of his professional life. It was the human Rushkoff I was searching for, the man behind the philosophy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Douglas Rushkoff, the author of Team Human, also of many other books, an acclaimed technologist. Douglas, tell me a little bit about yourself. How would you summarize your achievements or lack of achievements in your life? I guess the main thing I've been doing in my professional life has been fighting over the set and setting of digital technology. I was very enthusiastic about the potential of this stuff to unleash a dormant capacity of human beings to collaborate and cooperate in ways that we hadn't yet imagined. You know, that it would be as big as language or text and allowing for new forms of communication and working together. I feel like I've been fighting against what turns out really to be corporate capitalism, towards fighting against the idea that the internet is here to figure out ways to extract more money and data from people and to support these exponential business plans. It's really that. You know, I'm from the early cyberpunk, psychedelic, pro-human technology culture, and I watched it get overrun by the Wired magazine business culture. And I'm still here to write books and do talks and make podcasts and movies that really are looking at how do we retain or even enhance human autonomy in spite of all this. Well, I'm thrilled you're still around. You've got this new book, Team Human, which came out of a Team Human podcast. The reason I asked that question is I'm guessing that your self-definition and your definition of what it means to be human are kind of the same. In other words, do you see yourself and your goals in your life, are they a kind of manifestation of a certain kind of humanness? Certainly in intent, if not in result. Yeah, I'm probably as much a victim and perpetrator of the things I'm railing out against as anybody else. I have my 401k plan and I have an automobile and you know I'm not living a totally human life that I would aspire to. But yeah, I'm kind of a lateral thinker. Yeah, I'm someone who looks at 
the patterns in new ways and tries to feel fresh and alive and connected to other people rather than so automated. So I value my very local existence, my eye contact with other people and that sort of on the ground scaled human reality. So you juxtaposed yourself or your kind of lifestyle with the corporates, with the Wired magazines, with the titans now of Silicon Valley. Are you suggesting that those people on the other side, are they not really human? Oh, they're definitely human. They're definitely human. They've just succumbed to really dehumanizing models of the world. They've accepted corporate capitalism as a fact of nature. They really believe that Darwin wrote a book about evolution that says that individuals compete for survival against one another, and they think that's the science, and they think that the market is somehow a natural expression of that. So they just don't know that Darwin said the opposite, that Darwin was saying that evolution is actually the story of how species collaborate and cooperate amongst themselves and with other species in order to ensure mutual survival. And they don't know that the market ideology that they're so committed to, this idea that the economy has to grow in order for everything to be okay, that that's just an artifact of a very particular economic operating system that was put in place in the 12th and 13th century by monarchs trying to stem the rise of the middle class, and that we've accepted again, we've accepted at face value. So no, they're not inhuman. They're definitely human beings. They're just human beings who've been as hypnotized by the rules of corporate capitalism as their users are by the interfaces and the all the mean tricks that they put into our news feeds and apps to addict us or to trigger our brainstem into fight or flight. They're still human. It's just human beings acting in the silliest, most frightened, automatic ways. When I read Team Human, and I've read all your books, I read a critic of capitalism, but I don't somehow read Marx. What I see in your work is echoes of Rousseau and his idea that in the beginning we were good and that it's the market and capitalism that has somehow corrupted us. Is that fair? I'm not saying that you read Rousseau and then wrote your books, but do you feel part of that idealistic tradition of critiquing capitalism, the humanistic tradition of critiquing capitalism? I mean, I might be part of a humanistic tradition of critiquing capitalism, but I don't think I fall into the trap of saying, oh, we were once in this great Eden and we were pure humans expressing ourselves lovingly. I mean, it works well as a story. This is what George Monbiot says, you know, that I've got to tell it that way. Things were once great and we were also human and wonderful and connected and like little wonderful Bedouin tribes in paradise. And then along came corporate capitalism and corrupted us and did all this terrible stuff. But now there's a new day and we can hold hands and reach forward. I wouldn't go there, but I would say that human beings have lived through a succession of renaissances over time. And each of these renaissances bring a whole bunch of new things into our society, into our world, and repress a bunch of other things. 
And what we need now, this is what I've been arguing really since the late 80s, what we need now is a new renaissance, not a revolution, not disruption, a new renaissance where we can retrieve some of the mechanisms that we left behind from the commons and peer-to-peer trade and local currencies optimized for the velocity of money rather than the extraction of capital, a local reality rather than a scaled one, handcrafted things rather than everything being industrial, and that all of these different models can coexist. It's just certain ones get repressed. It would be hard for me to really say whether things are getting better or things are getting worse. Things are certainly getting better for a bunch of people, but it feels a little steroidal to me. You know, it's better in the way that an athlete getting that last shot of whatever they take of some super testosterone formula. It's like, I'm strong right now. It's like, yeah, but buddy, wait for the crash. Eventually that's going to catch up with you. And I feel like we're in that sort of catch up moment. But it's not like, oh, we're going to go back. When I'm feeling optimistic and hopeful, it's that we're going to retrieve some of the things we left behind, those more circular understandings of the world, the more regenerative principles in both economics and agriculture, the power of rapport as a precursor to solidarity, which is a precursor to power. We're just seeing the IPO of Uber, which is in some ways the perfect example of the ways in which our society is better now, is it's better for a few people working in a building who now are part owners of a company whose capital worth is now greater than BMW or maybe GM, but who has millions of people working at less than minimum wage. And, you know, 8% of Uber drivers lose money working for the company. You talked about a lot of things needing to change. You talked about blockchain. You talked about Uber. You talked about the economic system. But so far in this conversation, you haven't used the D word. You haven't brought up democracy. And the role of democracy in what you call the Renaissance, in your mind, do we live in a democracy? Is that the problem or the solution? I wonder sometimes. It's funny. I had before even the last presidential election cycle, back when GW, I think, was still president, and I had lunch with the former secretary of state and his various underlings. We were talking about Fox News, and I'm, of course, the little idealistic little hippie kid. And he said, oh, are you finally ready to accept the fact that democracy has been proven an utter failure? And my jaw just like dropped, you know, that Mm. how could one believe that? But, you know, what his point was is that now we live in a world where democracy is anchored in most young people's experience as American Idol. And when we have stations like Fox News that can, without a footnote, that could just play, you know, videos of political leaders saying that women in New York birth their babies and the doctor wraps it up in a blanket and then they have a conversation to decide whether to kill it. I mean, that's what abortion is. Rest her soul. My mom started watching Fox the last decade of her life and would come to me with these totally bizarre things. And I would have to say, no, mommy, no, don't. (laughs) That's not true. It becomes hard to think that we're in a functioning democracy when our propagandistic tools seem to be at such a higher level than our educational tools. And I wonder, is having the right to vote, does that make a democracy? No, it's really just one element of it. So tie in your notion of what it means to be human and what it means to be part of Team Human with democracy. Because when I read your book and when I listen to your 
speeches and your podcast, it seems to me that Team Human is really all about a kind of ideal form of democracy. Is that fair? I would say so, yeah. Team Human's written for a society that needs a whole lot of remedial help. (laughs) If I don't talk so much about solidarity, it's because I'm talking so much about rapport, which is a prerequisite for solidarity. What do you mean by that word, rapport? You need to be able to look in someone's eyes and connect with another human being. The trick for, say, labor and democracy in the age of Uber and Amazon Turk is that unlike the industrial age, you're not standing on the assembly line next to another person. You can't talk to your coworkers at lunch when you eat lunch in the coal mine and say, hey, buddy, this kind of stinks, doesn't it? Yeah, they're not paying us enough. You can't forge solidarity if you don't have the ability to establish basic rapport. And rapport is the kinds of stuff, and you and I both write about it, that it's really hard to forge rapport on digital platforms. To be fair, you brought up Uber, and this week in San Francisco, Uber drivers went on strike. So there is some rapport in the digital economy, isn't there? Right. It's tremendous that they've been able to do so because there's no chat function on Uber. You know, they're not letting the drivers find one another. There's no community. They have to form it themselves. And yeah, and it tends to happen on a very local level more than a national level. So when I look at the future of democracy, at least in that sort of team human way, I'm encouraging people to get involved in local politics, in politics where the issues are not so ideological and so easily framed by Twitter or Facebook or stories. A lot of people spend a lot of their time worrying about and voting based on issues that they have no connection to whatsoever, where if they were voting and participating more locally, And thinking about, well, what is the stream where I live? What about the factory in our town? What about our schools? Democracy to me looks like joining your local school board, joining your local land zoning board. I mean, there's plenty to do. Those rooms are empty and there's usually just a couple of kind of crazy people sitting in the back because they've got nothing better to do. Well, I respect what you're saying, but isn't the reason, Douglas, that these rooms are empty is because around the world, not just in the United States, but in Brazil, in the Philippines, in Turkey, in Hungary, in Poland, in Italy, in these supposed democracies, people want the strong leader. They don't want to sit in the local school board. They want an Erdogan. They want a Trump. They want a Bolsonaro. They want a Duarte, and they're voting for them. How do you explain that in your theory of team human? Have we gone that wrong? Is it a sort of a reversion to a dependency on a father figure? And they always seem to be male, of course. Yeah, I mean, well, partly, sure. We have a multi-trillion dollar industry, meaning a technology industry, that is focused primarily on putting people into a fight or flight condition. That's what Facebook does. That's what Twitter's doing. That's what they're all doing now, is to get us not just to communicate to our amygdala, but to keep us in a state of anxiety and panic, to keep us antisocial so that we're depending on technologies for a sense of comfort rather than one another. And when people are in that state, in that frightened fight or flight survival, they feel that their very survival is at stake, that there's brown people coming over the border, that gypsies are going to kidnap their children, that Mexicans are going to take their jobs, that everybody is a threat, whether it's the brown people who are a threat or the Trump people who are a threat. Everybody feels so threatened that, yeah, they're going to revert to a childlike state and transfer parental authority onto some leader. This is what I was writing about in 1999, a book called Coercion, 
I was saying that if we take the tools of traditional advertising, and I even meant what the Toyota salesman does to you in the showroom, what the neurolinguistic programming people are doing in sales, the way advertising works, creating a sense of insecurity in the consumer and then bringing them the answer. If we port those techniques into digital technology, we're going to end up with a very frightened, disoriented public that's going to be incapable of acting like a body politic. And that's kind of where we are today. So if we want to have people voting intelligently, then we need to start kind of at the very beginning and help people develop basic coherence, the ability to observe reality around them accurately and to learn how to engage with other people and not be threatened by other social contact. We're not moving in that direction right now. And that's kind of why I had to write that book to say, look, evolution is the story of cooperation and collaboration. Other people are not your enemies. They're your friends. The way to build a strong economy is by everybody mutually getting one another rich, not taking stuff from each other in a zero-sum game. And the way to organize is not to see the other as some enemy, but to learn to see the human being in the person that you're considering the other. So I think your observations, as always, are brilliant. And you're one of the very first people to see this. And I think your analysis of Fox and Twitter and Facebook are right on. But aren't you and myself, indeed, aren't we sort of part of the problem? After all, your book's done pretty well. But I'm guessing 99.9% of people who bought Team Human or listened to the podcast, they're all anti-Trumpists. How do we escape these echo chambers? It's not just a technological issue. We can't blame everything on Fox News and Twitter and Facebook, can we? Uh, maybe a majority, but certainly not 90% of the people who buy or listen to Team Human are pro-Trumpists. Most of the people who complain to me and email about the show complain that I'm too pro-Trump myself, that I'm too ready to, and I do this all the time, to construct what Trump or people like him are saying to expose the sort of the humanity beneath it. Why does a human being say this? Well, what is the fear that's underlying this position? What is the logic? You know, so when I talk about why the coal miners hated Hillary, you know, they've been living on this land that their fathers, their grandfathers, their great grandfathers have been digging this coal out of the ground for the last century. And now some Democrat is telling me that I'm not allowed to do that anymore. I have to now depend on some bizarre high tech company from someplace I don't know to train me to build solar panels that I don't understand and make me more dependent on this, you know, mother state thing. When I do that, I get the angry emails saying, why are you giving that airtime? And it's because if there is a 99% that is getting my stuff, it's the 99% that want to try to rehumanize the world, that want to connect with the other side. And yes, that is preaching to the converted in that sense, at least the few that buy the book. You know, there's the 2 million who hear me on Russell Brand or something, but <laughs> there's the 2,000 that turn around and get the book. Those people are the ones who I think are going to be the evangelists in their communities, in the real world. They're the teachers and doctors and activists who are looking for the arguments and the rationale that they need to have their kids put down the iPad in the classroom and learn to make eye contact, learn to do presentations with each other. So no, and this has been really conscious on my part, certainly for the last 10 years. I don't think I fall into that trap of speaking only to progressive, you know, anti-Trump people. My first articles on Obama were, before he was elected, were very critical of Obama. Again, 
got me in all this trouble. But, from the left. Right, from the left. And I'm not trying to straddle it intentionally, but my work is not about the left or the right. My work is about the underlying human agency in any of this. So, you know, when I complain about Obama being more of a brand than anything else, we should watch out whether or not there's a genuine invitation to participate here. That got critique until Occupy came along and they're like, oh, right, you were kind of saying what we're saying. Ian Bremer, who I'm sure you know, a political consultant, was on the show last week. And I asked him about fixing democracy, what we need to do, specific doable solutions. And he said, to begin, we need to start talking to people who disagree with us. Would you agree with him on that? Or where do we begin to claw back the renaissance? That's one of the first things I say. I mean, there's a chapter in in Team Human called Organize, and it's largely about that. It's learning to see the other as a collaborator, I mean, a good way, rather than some kind of enemy. And it's also, you know, the willingness to stand up and say, here I am. That's the hard part. It's embarrassing, you know, I think for people to stand up. But I think at largely, I would say the first step almost always happens at the local level. I get so many emails from people who want to restore or retrieve democracy by creating a website that's going to aggregate all of the great apps that help democracy. <laughs> or I'm going to make a wiki. Oh my, you know, that sort of techno-solutionist urge. And I get it. It's from a beautiful place, right? They feel like they understand the common thread and they want to just put it all together so people then will have the information they need. And that's not really it. Well, you've been there, right? That's where you were in 1980 or 1985. Well, I didn't think we would build a tool to do it. You know, in 92, 93, when I was talking about the internet as a renaissance, I was saying the internet will give people the confidence they need to go and meet people in real life. I always believed it was that. You know, we had these great conversations on the well and in Usenet and all these places where I could test out ideas and find out that, oh, I'm not crazy. There's smart people who agree with me and have extended these arguments. And then I'm going to feel better about bringing that up in my bar or in a seminar or with my parents or with my friends. I've always felt about it that way, not that it would be this end in itself, which it's kind of turned into. But I always tell these folks who do, who want to just build that platform or make this thing or do that new voting thing or the new, we're going to put democracy on the blockchain, whatever it is. What we need first is functional, coherent, grounded, social human beings. If you don't have a basic social fabric, if you don't have a social reality, there's no way to vote or to participate out of something other than fear. And that just exacerbates our problems. One of the other themes that have come out in this series of interviews is the need to regulate big tech. Is that also essential, if not to shut them down or break them up? But do we need more aggressive regulation of the Facebooks and the Googles of the world if we're going to save democracy? You know, I would say yes and no. Regulation is not my expertise. It sounds good to me. I mean, I always think back to the way I kind of blindly accepted John Barlow's Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, which pretty much argued, government, get off the net. We got this one. And I didn't realize at the time, if you get rid of government, you will give corporations free reign. And it's like getting rid of fungus, the bacteria is going to grow. So I want government back. My problem with regulation is that my experience of regulation so far are examples like when we got, there was lead in the red paint on some companies, I think it was Mattel's Dora the Explorer toys. 
back in the 1990s. And everyone was up in arms. Oh my God, we've got to regulate the toy industry. So the toy industry sends the biggest players, you know, the top three toy companies meet with the government and come up with these new regulations that every toy that goes on the market needs $40,000 of testing. And they establish that as law. And then all the small toy makers say, wait a minute, I make three toy trains a year. I can't do $40,000 of testing on this train. So regulation, for the most part, usually favors the existing players. And they use regulation as an excuse to further entrench their own monopolies. That's of concern to me. But yeah, definitely, I believe in regulation done properly with the right people at the table, which doesn't feel possible in today's government. But yes, in principle, the main thing that I'm pushing for, if regulation is sort of like the way an allopathic doctor deals with disease. Let's hurt that disease. You know, find the drugs to kill that disease. I'm going more on the homeopathic or the naturopathic side saying, okay, there's this disease there. And sure, let the regular medical doctors go and deal with that. But what I'm going to do is strengthen your immune system. And that's what I'm trying to do with my work is strengthen our cultural, collective cultural immune system so that we're more resistant against this stuff as a people. Do you think the iPhone should come with a health warning, something like cigarette packets? This device might harm democracy or it might harm your humanity. Huh. I mean, would people stop using it? Well, people are stopping smoking eventually. They stopped smoking. I don't know if it was because of the labels. I mean, it's interesting. And now they're starting again, of course. So the problem in my daughter's middle school is they're all smoking jewels. So yeah. the corporations come back around again and re-addict us. Sure. And not that I'm any total fan of Steve Jobs, but I don't think the iPhone in its original form was going to be addicting. I don't think he meant for this to happen. He didn't I let his kids have the iPhone or the iPad in the house, so he knew something was wrong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the funny thing. Again, that was another main motivation to write this book is I feel like, and I don't just feel like it, I have evidence. I've spoken with them. The tech billionaires are trying to earn enough money to insulate themselves from the reality they're creating by earning their money in this way. You know, they know they're destroying the world. They're building bunkers in New Zealand and Alaska. They're trying to get away from us because they hate the world that they've made, but they feel trapped. So they're also the people I'm trying to help. Telling them you don't have to do it this way. Maybe a business plan where you earn 10 or $50 million is enough rather than a billion. And of course, ironically enough, sort of tragically in some ways, they're sending their kids to Waldorf schools in Silicon Valley where screens are banned for six and seven-year-olds. What's your view on these kinds of alternative education systems, the Waldorfs, the Montessoris? Do you think they are one solution to our crisis? It certainly would help. I mean, certainly for our kids. I mean, it doesn't mean that then they won't graduate 12th grade, then get a device and become just as addicted as any adult. So it's certainly better for kids. I mean, first, I'm teaching now. I teach at CUNY Queens. And my first day of class, I get notes from the students saying, you know, please excuse Johnny from class participation because, you know, he has a social anxiety disorder and more and more of them every year. And I'm convinced that's because they're glued to their phones and they're learning on iPads rather than learning how to be with other people in the classroom. So yeah, I mean, my daughter doesn't go to a Waldorf or a Steiner school. And that's partly because, I mean, maybe it's because of my leftist roots. I feel like I want my kids to go to public school. I want to be part of this world. I don't want to teach them from an early age that we need to sequester ourselves in some way from everything else. And plus, I like the civic 
reality of a public school. To push back on Waldorf, although I'm ambivalent of it, my 17-year-old daughter goes to a public Waldorf school. So there's no reason why Waldorf has to be Oh, that would be great. That would be great. So that's, we have the best of all worlds. So finally, Douglas, you are one of the great dreamers in tech and in cultural criticism. Let's forget practicalities. Dream a little bit for me, finally. I love that. Back to my theater days. Shut your eyes and we wake up, I don't know, let's say 10 years, because that's a good time in Silicon Valley. It's unimaginable. (laughs) We shut our eyes now. Everyone's listening. Shut your eyes. And then we wake up 10 years later into Douglas Rushkoff's world. What does it look like, very briefly, Douglas, and what do we need to do to make this dream a reality? Well, those are two different questions. Um, (laughs) The world that we wake up into, in no particular order, is one where people are sourcing their food from within 50 to 100 miles of where they live. They have a local currency that they use right alongside the centrally issued US dollar. Their kids walk to a public school that they feel safe enough for their kid to go walk there. There's a whole lot less automobiles on the road because we've realized that light rail and other things are more efficient and more people are working closer to their homes than they did before. And we've established commonses for many of the things that we currently have markets for. I would say in technologically, the biggest change would be that our data is part of a commons, that there's no more marketing of our data. So Google and Facebook and Twitter and all these companies that are living off our data won't be able to do that anymore because we have a data commons where we contribute all of the data that we want to to that commons, either attributable or not, so that it could be used by anyone to do you know, medical research or even consumer research or anything you want. So the data has no value because it's everybody's. It's, uh, it's no longer proprietary. We adapt and adopt the principles of regenerative agriculture to economics and to education and to politics. You know, we recall what it is to live really with many more circles than lines. So we have a society that is no longer hell bent on progress by any means necessary, sort of linear progress, and is looking instead at quality of life. And I don't think that's so outrageous. It's just a much more locally scaled existence where the first alternative is to look for a friend to help you with something than to look for a product to accomplish it for you. I feel we should end with a rendition of uh, John Lennon's Imagine. Yeah, except we don't even just have to imagine it. What I would say is if we are not actively moving toward that, we're all going to die. We no longer have the luxury of not engaging with these ancient indigenous practices. What we are realizing, even as privileged white males, we finally know what it is like to be colonized by the corporation. The same way the Native Americans knew what it was like to be colonized by British East India Company, or that Africa knew and South America knew what it was like to be colonized by America and Spain. Now we know what it is like to be colonized by apps that are colonizing our awareness, our data, our money, our consciousness, this is it. We either push back and we can push back in some of the ways that you're talking about. They're not the ways I know about, 
but through democratic process, regulation, government, and activism. And we can push back by retrieving and restoring our basic human decency, our ability to connect with other people. And the more social you are, the more connected you are with other people, the more you can look in other people's eyes and not look away, the more resilience you will have, the more resistance you will be able to mount against a multi-trillion dollar industry that means you no good. You're listening to Keen on Democracy with your host, Andrew Keen. Hello, I'm Jason Sanderson, the producer of the show. Now we're about to take a quick break while we hear from our sponsors. But please stick around as Andrew will be right back to conclude this episode with his five takeaways. Hi, my name is Steffi Czerny, and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels. And we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keane is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. Our motto for this year is optimism and courage. We want to put a really positive spin on recent technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. Visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket. Thanks so much for sticking around. Now here's Andrew with his five takeaways from this interview. So I hope this conversation with Douglas Rushkoff uncovered the man behind the philosophy. And not just because he's such a self-evidently engaging and attractive human being. You see, I think there's a critical connection, a kind of symbiosis between Rushkoff, the humanist philosopher, and Rushkoff, the man. The essence, I think, of Rushkoff's humanism is his focus on our social qualities. We are truly human, he suggests, when we have rapport with others, when we can look each other in the eye, when we can display sympathy and thus solidarity with others. Man, Rushkoff remixes Aristotle, is a social creature. Politics, then, particularly democracy, is a social thing. Only this is a warmer, more accessible Aristotelianism, one forged in Brooklyn rather than in Athens. Therein lies the tragedy of the digital revolution, Douglas Rushkoff says. Rather than bringing us together, as digital punks like Rushkoff himself dreamt back in the early 90s, Global digital capitalism is dividing us. Rather than soothing us, Twitter and Facebook are compounding our anxiety and rage. Rather than making us more sympathetic, social media is making us meaner. Rather than enlightening us, digital has become a tool of propagandists. Instead of a renaissance, a rebirth of the social, digital capitalism is killing our ability to collaborate to have rapport, to look each other in the eye. What's the answer then, the fix to this descent into the antisocial? 
Rushkoff says the answer lies in the local, in a return to the manageable social networks of the local community, of local democracy, of small-scale handcraft and agriculture, above all else, of the collaborative commons. That's how, Rushkoff says, we can retrieve our humanity, retrieve what he calls the social mechanisms that we've left behind. All this imaginary localism might appear a little daunting in our seemingly inevitable global age. But that's why I think this conversation is as much about Douglas Rushkoff the human being as Douglas Rushkoff the philosopher. His essence, I think, is his ability to think, to be sympathetic, to establish rapport, to even recognize the weaknesses and contradictions in his argument. Being political, strengthening democracy then, requires a return to the social, to our ability to establish solidarity with others. It means becoming more like Rushkoff himself. So, if last week's guest Ian Bremer suggested the way to fix democracy is to talk to people with opposite opinions, Douglas Rushkoff, the spirit behind Team Human, might be our model for how to begin to do this. Now, we've got a real big favour that we need to ask. If you like this episode and you've been enjoying the other interviews, we'd sure love it if you headed over to the iTunes podcast app and leave us a review. If you'd like to hear more episodes, there's a subscribe button there and in all of the platforms like Spotify, Overcast and Google Play. So head over to one of those, subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends if you'd like, and we'd appreciate it so much. Be sure to check out our next episode, and from all of us at Keenan Democracy, we hope you have a fantastic day.